Amen. Well, my name is Trev, and I am very happy to be here to deliver uh, God's Word to you this morning. And uh, that, I don't, I don't know about you, but that movie uh, really hit me hard uh, when I first watched it. It hit me hard again um, in terms of just the sacrifice of um, really our brothers, really our brothers, our family in, uh, in Libya who are Egyptian and what they have done for us. I'm grateful, and it's a great honor to be able to stand here and preach God's word with the freedom that we have. And my hope is that that freedom isn't freedom to just be quiet and, and dance around all the tough issues, but that it's actually a freedom uh, to, um, to courageously and boldly proclaim the word of God. When I go into a room at times in a party, thanks Matt, um, and it's, it's almost always with my wife or with a group of girls, and you know this, other, other women, and uh, sometimes it's a, it's a bunch of new people, okay? And usually the first thing that my wife will say to me when we leave that was, did you see the size of the ring on that woman's finger? Has anyone had this sort of experience? No? Some? It's interesting that out of all the things that are often noticed, even in our culture that seems to have dumbed down the whole concept of marriage, that this idea that one ring on a finger can mean a lot. It's usually even in, in the sense of, hey, there's a guy who's got his life put together. Oh, he's got a ring on his finger. I've heard that one as well. It's interesting, this, this symbol, I'll tell you about this symbol that I wear around. Some of you are like, yeah, I can tell that you're married by the fact that you wore a ring on your finger. But I want you to see that this is really just a symbol, but a very powerful symbol, isn't it? Very powerful symbol. I want you to know that there's nothing actually of super great value in this particular ring. Some of you have a lot of value in your rings. Mine in particular has almost no value at all. Um, I've replaced the, the, uh, the ring I chose. My wife said, make sure you tell people that it was you that chose this ugly ring. Um, but she liked this one better, and we actually found it on the pier in Seattle, and it's $10. Stainless steel. You could have one too. It's not of great value, but it's of great significance, isn't it? It's interesting how wherever I go, even though I don't think about the value of the ring as in $10 of stainless steel with I don't even know what they put in there, it could be plastic, has enormous significance for proclaiming to those who I meet about who I am and what I'm like and who I'm married to, most importantly. Symbols have this unique way of, of proclaiming things. And as we, as we talk about this whole business of the, the church and the household and the family of God, there's a, a couple of symbols in particular that are really powerful for the church. They're actually simple, kind of like a ring, but they have enormous significance. And we're going to talk about them this morning. Uh, some of you have heard us talk about this. In fact, every week you will hear me talk in some form about one of our symbols. That's what we would call the Lord's table. It's a symbol. 
We also have another symbol. It's called baptism. And we, we, we fill a, a tub with mostly warm water, and then it kind of runs out, so it's kind of cool at the end. But these are symbols. Some would call them sacraments. If that's the tradition from your from, that's exactly what you could call them, sacraments. Meaning almost symbols that have just something more than just symbolic significance. They have almost this power to just give us some visual idea of what's going on. The reason why this is so important for us is because, interestingly enough, as we talk, and some of you are even moved, I think I was moved to tears as I watched the video of the blood of the martyrs that was spilled, and even that, even that uh, verse that was read, and they will overcome Satan by the blood of the Lamb. That as we, as we think about the blood that was shed, and even the uh, reading descriptions of the video, they said the blood actually washed into the ocean, and they got an, an image of the blood kind of washing through the ocean. They said, this is kind of a letter written to everyone else that this is what we do. And I said, no, it's not. It's a letter written that Jesus is real. And we have that letter every week. Very special symbol to us. We don't have it every week, baptism, but uh, we don't have one set up today because we don't want you to understand that this we're pressuring people into these symbols, that we're forcing you to understand these. We want you to hear this morning to understand the significance of why would we hold so tightly to these things? Why would we hold so tightly to these things? And so this morning, I want to go through uh, these two symbols. I'm going to do this as best as I can, as fast as I can. Some of you don't believe me, and I don't blame you because I haven't done a very good job in the past. I've got a timer up here, but it clearly never works because it's always finishing way too early. But I'm going to talk about these two ideas, baptism and the Lord's table, and I want you to, again, kind of think of them symbolically rather than simply something that we have to do as a church. Throughout the centuries uh, that the church has existed, since Jesus Christ established his church through a man by the name of Peter and passed that baton of leadership on, Christians everywhere have celebrated these sacraments. Some have, some have made more uh, than, than these two things sacraments, but just about every church that I know has celebrated these two sacraments in particular. And so there's a couple of passages that I think we need to know. And the first one we would find in Romans chapter 6, verses 1 to 11. If you don't have a Bible here this morning, um, or have forgotten your Bible, would you raise your hand and someone would love to bring you a Bible? Uh, and you can follow along there. Um, if not, turn in your app to Romans chapter 6, um, starting in verse 1. I'm going to read all the way through 11. And what we're, what we're looking at here is a passage kind of halfway through a book. So remember that this is halfway through a letter to a people. This is Apostle Paul who at this point he believes, but at one point he did not necessarily believe that Jesus was the true God. It says this, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like this, we, certainly, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like this. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. 
Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. And so in each of these two symbols, uh, we're going to ask these questions. First, what does it mean? And second, like, who should partake? Uh, because these are the questions that we, we need to ask every week. So what does it mean? And, and who should partake or who should experience these things? Now, what you have in this particular passage is you have an image. For those of you who don't know what baptism is all about, or at least baptism in, in our context, it's literally we have this, um, it's a horse trough. It's blue at this point. If there's any artist who feels like creating something much more decorative, here is your invitation. But at this point, it literally is a UFA trough that my buddy picked up in Red Deer. It's, it's funny how it's shaped. It's shaped almost like a coffin. Some of you would say that that's cryptic. I would say that that's perfect. Because here is what it is, kind of symbolizes, as you read in the text, it symbolizes a death and a resurrection. So you ask, what's important to know about Jesus Christ? Actually, it's his death and his resurrection. His death and his resurrection. And so actually the act of baptism, and this is why personally we don't believe in baptizing children by sprinkling because we don't think it has the same kind of effect as immersing someone who believes in the name of Jesus Christ. And so I or someone close to them, it doesn't really matter. There's no magical power in me given by God to somehow make this more powerful. I think it's even more powerful when a spouse or a close friend who led them to Jesus actually participates in this, in this idea of baptism, but we lower them back into the water and then we leave them there. No one's laughing. No, 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 we don't do that. When someone says, what's important to know about Jesus? And they say the death of Jesus on the cross. I say, oh yes, but we have to talk about the resurrection. We don't have a cross with a Jesus who's still hanging on it. We have a Jesus who is alive today. That's why every good person who pulls or, or baptizes brings that person back out of the water. They don't stay dead. They become alive again. And so you see this symbol of actual putting someone in a coffin as cryptic as that may sound, this is actually spiritually what happens when we become Christians. And so what we're doing here publicly is to simply then bring out what's already happened inside. Because as the text says, when you become a Christian, here's what happens. You die a death, but you also live a life. What's the death that you die? Well, here's the death that you die. You die the life that you thought was better than the life Jesus has for you. You die to that. You physically stand here and confess to the rest of the church family that I am dying to that way of life. I am dying to my sin. I am dying to my own way. And then if we're good pastors or friends, we'll lift you back out. Because what are we saying there? You are alive to the things of Jesus. Now someone say, well, is that when someone gets saved? And I would say, it better not be. That's not the point of baptism is to save people right here. 
The point is, for you to believe what I said just now about Jesus, and when you believe that, you say, I am willing to say that publicly. And then you come up here and you show us and you proclaim by this activity of doing this. And then we clap and we cry. And you know what we do? We point back to this as a point in which you publicly said this to the rest of us. That's why sometimes I've actually likened this this baptism as a birth certificate. Now, a birth certificate doesn't create you, does it? No one says, well, I'd like to have a baby, so let's go get a birth certificate and see if a baby can come out of that. That's kind of crazy. But once you have a baby... And someone says, uh, you know, what's the proof that you had a baby? And you're like, here. Oh, okay. Then we can give you a birth certificate. There are witnesses there. There are people there. You see it. And so this is why I liken it to a birth certificate. It doesn't, it doesn't prove that you necessarily were born. It comes after the fact. It doesn't cause you to be born. It just simply is a... Is a, it's a it's identification. And when is a birth certificate really necessary? You, you need it for identify, identification. You know, if you're uh, calling people for supper, and I call our kids for supper, you call them, and we don't say to them, hey, we need you to show your birth certificate if you want to eat at our supper table. No, we, we know. We, we identify. But if you cross countries and people don't know who you are and what you've done, what do you prove? You prove it with a birth certificate, which you now translates into a passport. Hard to get a passport without a birth certificate. I don't think you can. Maybe you can. But you see the parallels here. And so this is really what it is meaning, is, is we, we see that first of all, we are buried. We are buried. We have been buried with Christ. Oh, excuse me. That was water, friends. Paul says this in another letter in Colossians. He uses the, this word circumcision, and this was, the, this was the old covenant way. This was the way that they used to identify. Aren't you glad? Anyone glad for the new covenant? Yeah, amen, amen. This is the old way was circumcision, and if you don't know what circumcision is, I'm not going to tell you. You're going to ask somebody else after the service. But this was the way of identifying yourself as someone who followed God. And so this is why Apostle Paul actually says, in him also were you circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, meaning he's not talking anymore about a physical cutting off. He's talking about a spiritual cutting off. By putting off the body of flesh, by the circumcision of Christ. So in some ways, it is like circumcision in that it's a spiritual cutting off. It's a spiritual death. We were buried. And so my personal hope is, I don't care how sophisticated we get as a church, we always have a coffin-like thing. Because this is really what this is. This is a spiritual death to our old way, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. So we were buried. It is also about rising again. I'll read the same verse again, thinking through 
raised him from the death, raised him from the dead. Here we go. One more. In him also were you circumcised with the circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And thirdly, it symbolizes death to sin and new life in Jesus. It symbolizes death to sin and new life in Jesus. Later on in that particular chapter, is that flipping around there? I'm having trouble here with the the slides. One more. If then you have been raised uh, with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. So this, this symbol of, of, of a death and then a resurrection, but it's not a, a life of freedom to do whatever you want because what you're saying is essentially, my old life is dying, my new life is rising, but what is that new life? That new life is obedience to Jesus and now you're, you're proclaiming I'm not my own anymore. I am someone else's. I live someone else's life. You, really? You live someone else's life? Yes. The life that Christ has for you. That's what you live. So when someone says, well, well isn't, grace, um, isn't grace just Jesus forgiving me of all my, all my problems that I've ever done and then I have all this kind of freedom to do whatever I want? Actually, that's not grace. And if you look at Romans chapter 6, that's someone's argument. Someone is saying, so shall we, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? This is an, uh, kind of maybe an old, maybe even archaic way for you to say, oh, so if someone forgives me a lot, shouldn't I mess up a lot so I can get lots of forgiveness? Paul said, no, you died. The writer is saying, no, you died. You're not your own anymore. You look back at your baptism, this is what happened to you. You died to your old way. You're a different person now. You don't just get to decide what it is you're going to do. You do what Jesus asks you to do because you've given your life to him. Imagine if you had a friend and you had forgiven your friend of all the times that they didn't call you back. This is hypothetical. This has never happened to me. And you ask forgiveness, and they say, you know what, it is, it, is, it is my joy to forgive you. This, this, is, this is a way that we can unify our relationship. And so I said, oh, so the way I could make my relationship stronger with you is to by continually not calling you back? And you would say, no, 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 you're not really understanding forgiveness. <laughs> you don't sin a lot. So you get a lot of grace. Grace is, you never earned that in the first place. And so even to to back up with the the whole book of Romans, which is really a long argument. I mean, the guys are studying this. It's going to take about eight years to get through this thing because there's so much rich teaching in it. 
But essentially, how do you, how do you just get clean just, just, just by coming up out of the water? You don't get clean just by coming up out of the water. You get clean when Jesus says, I will exchange all your dirtiness for my cleanliness. I will exchange all of the things you've ever done wrong, all of the things you haven't done for me that you should have, all the things you've done against me and shouldn't have. If you believe I am who I say I am, I will exchange what I have earned, which is perfectness before God. I did everything that God asked me to. I obeyed him perfectly. I never disobeyed. I lived the life that you should have lived. And when you believe in Jesus, he does the old switcheroo. And he exchanges what he has earned for what you have earned. And you cannot buy this at any price. It's free. That's why it's called grace. Paul describes that in Romans. He says, if you could earn it, what's it called? Anyone? If you can earn something, what's it called? A a wage. A salary. Earnings. But you don't get earnings if you don't do anything. You get grace. You get a gift. And this is what Paul is saying is this whole cleansing, this whole exchange is a gift from God. You cannot brag about this. You cannot say to anyone, look what I have done. All you can say is, look what someone else has done for me on my behalf and in my place. Look what I get. And so the whole story of God is about grace. This is one of our models that we say right after you read it every single week when you come in, bringing grace to the city. We want to tell people about this grace. We think all kinds of people should know about this grace. And we know and understand that there are so many people that don't see it that way. But it is grace that you cannot earn. It is mercy that you do not deserve. And it is symbolized in baptism. So who is it for? Who is it for? That's what it means. Who is it for? Well, simply put, it's for anyone who believes that. It's for anyone who believes that. I've been in church ministry for a, a large portion of my life. Probably half of my life I've been in public paid ministry. And I am absolutely amazed at how many people still think that baptism is about earning a long track record of moral pureness. Maybe you've been told that. Maybe that's what you understand about baptism. That the people standing here who are getting baptized are people that have this great track where they've been following Jesus for years and find this is, this is the last step of a long number of things they've done good for God. And do you know what's wrong about that thought? If that's your thought, do you know what's wrong about that thought? There is no category in the story of God for you. There's no, I read through the New Testament, I read through it regularly. I've never once found a person who got baptized at the end of their life because of all the great things that they did in their life. I've never found it. It doesn't exist. In fact, you find the actual opposite. 
you find people that just now believe, like today, and within seconds they say, well, what would stop me from publicly proclaiming that? Acts chapter 8 is one of these stories. Where a guy's trying to figure out how to get close to God and, 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 and God miraculously sends some sort of missionary to him and he explains it and he says, there's one Savior who can take away all your sin if you just put your trust in him. He will cleanse you and he will, in some ways, he will baptize you. And so the, the, the man responds, well, what's going to stop me from being baptized right now? Hey, look, there's a pool of water. Let's go. And he gets baptized right there. This happens all the time. And I think even though I've talked about this in our church before, one of the things I want us to really get clear is that if there's something that's holding you back from this, it really should only be belief in who Jesus says he is. You know, some, t- some people use their litmus test of their commitment to Jesus by how many times they come to church. Some, maybe, if, if anyone's kind of growing up in the Billy Graham era, even if you're not a Christian, you might be familiar with Billy Graham who did big crusades and he preached the gospel and lots of people kind of came forward. And the litmus test of literally whether or not someone believed began to be, did you pray this kind of prayer and did you raise your hand? I grew up in that, right? Seems a little awkward now to ask all of you to bow your heads while I look at everyone and if anyone believes, would you raise your hand so I can point you out in my brain so that I know today was the day you prayed that prayer and got saved. It does seem a little awkward for me right now. I'm not condemning that. I'm just saying there's actually a better way of doing this. It is who wants to get baptized. I guarantee you. Even if you're comfortable being in front of people, there's only one reason why you're going to come forward is because you actually believe this. It's not something you just, you just do. We, we tried to take down every barrier that we could think of. Preparation. You don't have to tell a story, but if you'd like to, that's great. Hey, you didn't bring clothes, and, and you get what? Yeah, that's why we got really baggy sweats and T-shirts for you afterwards or before. Yeah, well, I didn't know this was coming. That's why we say an open invitation at the beginning of the service. So at the end of the service, if you want to get baptized, you go ahead. And so today, if you're like, okay, this is making sense to me. I believe this. I want to do this. I would say, come talk to me after the service. We'll baptize you next week. We'll baptize you next week. What is required? What is required is that you simply admit you are a sinner and you need the Savior Jesus. What is required is you need to admit that you are dying to yourself and your way of life. What is required, you need to say publicly, I believe what those martyrs believed, that Jesus Christ shed his blood for me. And his blood being shed is the statement that I'm willing to put my whole life on. That's what's required. That's all that's required. I tell you, it's a powerful symbol, but it's important. So talk to me about that if you'd like.
Now, why did they put baptism first and then Lord's Supper second? And I would say this, because here's what's often happened in our churches. This is an easy one. We do this at the end of our service. I always do my best to explain to people that if you don't believe that's true about Jesus Christ, then please don't come forward because it's, there's nothing magic in it. There's, there's no kind of magical powers. You don't taste one of these wafers or pieces of bread and wine and suddenly all your sins are absolved. That's not how that works. But it is easy to get in a line or easier to get in a line and just go with the rest of your family or go with a friend or go with someone. And it's, at times, it's slightly embarrassing to sit there and say, obviously, if I sit here, I'm not a person who believes. And so I don't want to worry, worry about what people think of me, so I'll just go forward even though I don't believe this, and it will look. It's a whole different deal to come up here and get baptized, to get dunked to sit in a symbolic coffin and tell people, I have repented, and you can, you can see this. But what's interesting is that baptism is the birth certificate, and this is the anniversary. And so this isn't a pressure to say, well, if you, if you take the Lord's table, then you need to get baptized. I would say this, have you ever celebrated an anniversary before you've gone to a wedding? That's what this is. This symbol here is a celebration of, of the reality of the spiritual baptism that you've already gone through. And so this, this isn't a pressured way. It's not saying, well, the people that partake of the Lord's table but haven't been baptized aren't Christians. I don't want to talk like that at all. That's not what I'm trying to say. I remember preaching once through that and someone says, well, you know, what, what did you learn? And they said, well, I, I heard you say my kid wasn't a Christian. I was like, well, how did you get that? And they said, well, you said that there was no category for anyone in the New Testament, which I did, who, take, who celebrated the Lord's table but didn't get baptized. I said, how do you get my kids not a Christian from that, even if you translated that into a number of other languages? So I don't want you to hear that. But I want you to hear what's holding you back. What's holding you back from getting baptized? Because if you've heard me explain this particular symbol here, the Lord's table, and yet haven't been baptized, in some ways, you've been celebrating the anniversary without the birth certificate. And so it's an invitation more than anything else. Let me read to you, and i got to be quick here, but this is, you know, this is leading right into communion. How sweet is that? We can preach on communion, then we can do it. It's wonderful. Matthew, Mark, Luke. It's in the book of Luke, chapter 22, and I want to read for you and, and just highlight some things as quickly as I possibly can. We're at the end of Jesus' life for context here. Chapter 22 is about Jesus experiencing the Passover with his disciples. Now, I'll, I'll talk about that in a second here. In verse 7, Luke chapter 2, verse, uh, verse 7 uh, to 22. Let me take a drink here without spilling on myself. Now, I'll read. And here's what it says. Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. 
So Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and prepare the Passover for us that we may eat it. And they said to him, where will you have us prepare it? He said to them, behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters and tell the master of the house, the teacher says to you, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished, prepare it there. And they went and found it just as he had told them and they prepared the Passover. And when the hour came, he reclined at table. The way they ate was sitting at table. I love to tell that to my kids when we eat. Let's go recline at table. And the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And then he took the cup. And when he had given thanks, he said, take this and divide it amongst yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another which of them it could be who was doing this. We're supposed to be catching the backdrop of what's happening here. We say the Lord's table. You can use the words the Lord's supper. You can use the word communion. You can use the word Eucharist. All those words are good. All those words are right. We're not picky about any particular one, but we actually have somewhat personalized it and said it's a family meal. It's a family meal. It's our church family that gathers around a particular meal. All good families eat together, right? Amen? Yeah, we eat together every week as a family, a small meal, as a way of remembering. And, and this, what's interesting about this idea of Passover is that some of you are probably not that familiar with Passover. If you've ever seen the movie Prince of Egypt it, it, by, by Disney, it's a mostly right rendition of the, where the Passover actually came from. And the Passover was, was the, essentially the pinnacle of a story that was being told in the book of Exodus. And read the first 12 chapters of Exodus if you'd like to get some background on that. But essentially, I can summarize it for you in a couple of sentences, meaning that God was bringing his people out of 400 years of slavery, and at the end, he would provide freedom to his people through the shed blood of a number of lambs whose throats were slit and blood was shed. And that blood was then, uh, uh, that, that blood of execution was then taken and put upon the doorposts of those who believed that it was God who would save them. And so it is literally by the shed blood of those lambs that those people were saved. This is exactly why in the New Testament, when one of the people who watched Jesus and he, and he saw Jesus, the first time he saw him, the first thing he said was, Behold the Lamb of God whose blood takes away the sin of the world. And so this is what we're supposed to see. This is why we're talking about blood on Sunday morning. The Passover is a very important event. We don't have a concept of Passover. We think of it as really morose. But let me explain to you uh, from a book called Christ in 
the Passover. I want to read this. The number of permanent residents in Jerusalem in Jesus' time was about 600,000. A conservative estimate of the vast multitude of Passover pilgrims, a lot of people came in, was about 2 million. Think about that. A city that's about 600,000 becomes a city of 2 million. Okay? Pretty packed house. During the four weeks before Passover, the synagogues, that's the places where the Jewish law was taught, and the academies placed much emphasis on teaching and reinforcing the holiday's meeting. Meaning, Jerusalem was filled with excitement and expectancy, and all the citizenry prepared for the festivities and influx of visitors. Members of the Sanhedrin busied themselves with arrangements for the repair of roads and bridges leading into the city. Housewives sewed new garments for everyone in the household and cleaned vigorously. Vendors in the marketplaces expanded their stock in anticipation of the increased business. Even beggars, huddling at the gates in their rags, dreamed of a season of bounteous compassion and generosity prompted by this worshiper's piety. Sounds like Christmas time, doesn't it? Sounds like a hustle of bustle. You know, you go into the mall at Christmas time and there's nice music playing and everyone's like, I'm happy. No one's dancing like this, but it's a happy time. It's interesting because the, 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 the Christmas story actually, when you look at the Christmas story, it's pretty dark. It's about a cave and a pregnant teenager who doesn't know anyone and no one really believes them. And we make it all cheerful. And then Easter, that seems to be like really the highlight. And we make that just the lamest time of year, a four-day weekend for some of us. I know a lot of people, it's like, what are you doing for Easter? Are you coming to our big celebration? No, we thought we'd do something else this year. What? You missed the best part of the year? Really? Okay, anyways. It had this amazing feel to it. Why? The, 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 the Passover was the big celebration. I mean, you eat well. People, families come together. Nobody works. It's like a week. Everyone's happy. Everyone's reminded of the grace of God. And, and, and God said, hey, hey, one of the things I'm going to institute as your God is I am going to force a party on you for a week. Sounds like a great God, don't you think? And so there's all this hustle. And so, so Peter and John are like, okay, Jesus, so where's, where are we partying this week? And Jesus is like, I've got other plans. What I want you to do is I want, I want you to see that this great party of a lamb's blood that was shed, I am going to institute a new symbol and I'm going to like put it over the backdrop. So you're literally almost like 3D. You're going to see this pop. And you're going to see that that old Passover is not dumb, it's not useless, it's powerful, but you're going to see that it, it, it has this pop because the new sacrifice is here. And you're not going to have to yearly come. In fact, anyone who believes in me, you don't even have to be Jewish to celebrate this. Anyone who believes in me will essentially be able to receive this free gift of grace. There's two, there's, two, um, there's two actual uh, um, festivals. Fast, festival of unleavened bread and the, and the festival of the Passover. And they're supposed to be together. That's why there's bread. That's why there's wine already there. 
And so what's the, what's the Passover about? Well, it's about remembering. It's about remembering. And so is the Lord's table. It's about remembering. We remember every week. How many of you forget on occasion that Jesus died for your sins and you are free to live a life in him? Anyone forget? No one? It's just me? How many need regular reminders? How many of you have things at your desk, at, in your office, or at your home just to remind you to remember things? How many of you have alarms on your phone that even though something is important and you know you need to do it, you just have that reminder? How many of you ask for bills to be paid as like, I need to be reminded that this particular bill needs to be paid? That's me. I need those reminders. What's this? This is a reminder. Says you're not just living your life. You're not, this isn't, your life isn't your own. You were at one point baptized. You died to yourself. But it's also about sacrifice. You see? So if we look at that passage, the second part of that passage in 1 Corinthians... For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. This is the Apostle Paul speaking again, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. It's basically almost verbatim stealing from the book of Luke. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. He is saying that this new covenant is instituted through sacrifice. So what do we ultimately remember? We remember the sacrifice. Today we watched a video on 21 martyrs in Libya. And what did, we, what did we remember? We had a moment of silence for their sacrifice. And here's what we do every week. We have our own martyr. And we know him personally. And we don't watch a video for him every week. We have a living, breathing, like you can taste this stuff. You partake of a living sacrifice. Yeah, it can appear cryptic. Jesus suffered a brutal death. This is symbolized in the bread that's broken. He was beaten. He suffered. He was completely innocent, and yet he died for it. And on the cross, a crown of thorns was placed on his head. And this crown was shoved so hard into his head that it made blood trickle down his face. That's after he was beaten 39 lashes, which is one short of like how to kill someone by beating them to death. So he's got face. If you've seen Passion of the Christ, I think that's probably right. He would have literally been caked with dried blood. And his sores would have opened up every time he moved as he was being crucified on the cross. Why do you think we have wine? Because it's that bloody sacrifice, friends, that provides you and I the clean access to God. It's that sacrifice that gives us the opportunity to be in right relationship with God. The Bible actually says without blood being shed, there is no 
forgiveness of sins. The old way of doing it, and I just read this in Leviticus, is you'd literally put your hand on the head of an animal, and as that animal's throat was being slit, you were passing your sins on to them. And so you were watching some helpless animal die because you had wronged God. And that person had paid a penalty. And when Jesus says, this is my blood, Do this in remembrance of me. Here's what he's saying. Place your hand upon my head and I'll absolve all your sins. How do we do that? We trust that he is who he says he is. He was perfect. The lamb had to be perfect. This lamb that died the death, you could only bring a one-year-old lamb that was perfect. You had to take the best of your crops. Jesus was perfect. The Bible even says not even one of his bones was broken to symbolize that he was a perfect man. Never sinned. The lamb was then sacrificed. The lamb's blood was shed. Symbolically in the Passover, the lamb was was dotted over the doorpost of the home. In some ways, it's the same way it would be over a person's heart. Christ was crucified and his blood was shed for that. The lamb's blood was required In fact, they would catch it in bowls and they would sprinkle it on the sides of the altar so that when you came to the altar, you would see dark, dark, red, dried blood on the side of the altar and you would be reminded every time, probably through the smell and the sight, that somebody had paid a price so that you could have a relationship with God. Jesus said, trust in me and you never have to put your hand on a lamb's head again. It's my sacrifice that's once and for all. The last thing is, it's community. It's about community. Passover wasn't celebrated individually. It's one of the reasons why even in the way we symbolize it, we want you to all take out of the same basket, we want you to all take out of the same cups. Why is that? want to creep you out? No. Here's why we do it. We want you to have a physical, symbolic understanding that we don't do this as just individuals. This is the church that Jesus died for. And in some way, almost symbolically, every time we dip in, someone else has previously dipped in, and we all dip in from the same cup, and we all take from the same loaf. That's why we do that, friends. Because we live in such an individualized culture that, that we think this is just about us. No, Jesus died for this whole church. And so the you in here is actually not a you as an individual. It's a you corporately. And so who is this for? It's for us. It's for us. It's for those of us who have been raised with Christ. Who have turned our back on our own way. Who have said... Jesus, I'm sorry for the sins I have committed against you and for the ways in which I haven't done what you've wanted me to do. And I'm choosing to follow you no matter what. And so anyone who believes that can partake. But here's an interesting warning. An interesting warning is found in 1 Corinthians 11, 17 to 34. And this is what it says. There's a church probably a church plant, judging by the amount of problems that were going on in it. 
But essentially, the writer Paul is, is speaking to his church. He says, you guys are getting this all wrong. You're coming and you're using this to get drunk. You're taking the wine and, and, you're, and you're getting drunk. You're showing up drunk. You're not waiting till everyone is there. You're just partaking and you're eating. They had much bigger meals. They had much smaller churches. And so some people would eat all the bread and drink all the wine before everyone else got there. How rude, hey? But you know what Paul says? You don't get it. You're misunderstanding this. He said, when you don't examine yourself and understand that this is what this is actually about, he says, you drink and you eat judgment on yourself. Wow. And this is crazy. He says, that's why some of you are sick and some have died. Wow. For if anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself, that is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. Not my translation. What's Paul trying to say? Don't take the symbol lightly, friends. Don't take it lightly. This is a gift to us. This is a special moment. I think this is why we have it it kind of after the word of God, after we hear the gospel proclaimed, in many ways it's kind of the pinnacle of our service. We get to respond by partaking of this. And so I'll call the band up. call the band up. And I'll remind you of our symbols. Friends, if you would like to proclaim your allegiance to Jesus through baptism, I I would encourage you to come and talk to me and say, I'd like to be baptized. If it's not next week, we can find a way. We've got the tub. We own it. We've got the hot water heater. We can fill it up with water any Sunday you want. But what's holding you back? What's holding you back? And friend, this morning, if you've just partaken of, of this symbol flippantly, I, I want this time, although I say this often, that you should smile every time. I want you to examine yourself. I want you to ask yourself, am I at the point where I would publicly take this up in baptism? Now, some of you are like, I'm baptized. Hey, you better celebrate the anniversary. That's what it's about. So you can smile. I'm not saying that. But examine yourself. Have you taken Jesus seriously at his word? The Bible says confess your sins. Have you told Jesus recently, I once again have not done what I should have done. I've once again, I've stumbled and fallen. I've, I've missed what you have for me. Then I would say repent of your sin. Repent means to turn Say, Jesus, I'm sorry, I want to change. And come forward as a way of saying, Jesus, I'm committing myself once again to you and your will. I'm dying to myself once again. At one point I believed this, but now, today, I officially believe it again. And I would invite you to come and partake as we respond to what Jesus has said through songs.